Welcome to Let It Be Easy with Susie Moore. I almost don't even know where to begin with this Robin Sharma introduction because I have loved him as a writer for many years, ever since my sister gifted me a copy of The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari when I was still in my 20s. (laughs) I loved that book. I bought it for so many friends and it was such an eye-opening piece of literature for me because I started to understand so deeply how responsible I am for my own life experience and how my consciousness, my actions, my commitment to myself and fulfilling my potential is all within my hands. And the way that Robin Sharma writes and creates is so incredibly unique. You probably already know him, but if you don't, he is a globally respected humanitarian and the founder of a not-for-profit venture that's helped, that helps children in need lead better lives. He specifically cares about ensuring kids no longer suffer from leprosy. Now, widely considered as one of the world's top leadership experts, as well as an icon in the field of personal mastery, Robin Sharma is an incredible author uh, of 13 books. He's an incredible speaker. He works with huge clients and his books have sold millions, over 20 million copies worldwide. And they've been translated into more than 90 languages, making him one of the most influential writers alive today. I've also had the privilege of getting to know Robin in person, most recently actually meeting in Paris with uh, my husband, his partner, and just speaking about all things life. And I can tell you that I've met people in real life having read their books or studied their work, and Robin is the real deal. He walks his talk, he cares about others, he is dedicated to his own mastery and his own path. And in this interview, I think that you'll find a lot of ideas to start actioning and to walk away with for you to be able to be, do, and have more of what it is in your very limited, special life experience. We're speaking a lot specifically about his most recent book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto. And you're going to want pen and paper for this one because I've got a feeling you'll be taking lots of notes. Okay, with no more delay, I give you with such great joy, Mr. Robin Sharma. Robin Sharma. Robin, Robin, Robin. What a joy to speak to you again. I've already recorded your intro, so our fabulous listeners know that you and I have had the pleasure of connecting in real life. And right before we hit record, we were sharing that, you know, we met three years ago. Of course, a lot's changed in the world since then. My first question to you, Robin, is how are you doing? Now it's 2022, midway through. I, yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, you know, in a very creative cycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, spending a lot of time with family as well, and mm. um, you know, moving things, moving things forward. And and by the way, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast, Susie. It's it's a pleasure to know you, mm, Robin. Well, I was thinking, you know, how do I want to frame up this interview? Because I love your books. I know you have thirteen of them, and most specifically, we'll be speaking about the Everyday Hero Manifesto today. But. One thing I wanted to kick off with as I was, you know, really thinking about this was a lot of people will look at you, Robin, and they'll go, wow, you know, over 20 million books sold, having all these incredible keynotes, you know, having such influence and 
this huge contribution to humanity that you make, it must have always been easy. Like maybe you were born under a lucky star and, you know, uh, it was just so simple, no challenges. And I love, I think one of the things that I've loved most about your story is how you got started at age 25 as a lawyer, writing your own book, self-publishing it with your mum and dad's help. <laughs> Could you talk to us a little bit about that and how you got started? Sure. And, you know, I still feel uh, like I'm a beginner in many ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wrote in the Everyday Hero Manifesto is thing about a master is she all she never thinks she's a master. She always thinks like a beginner. And I don't think you ever want to lose that white belt mentality. But, you know, for me, um, my life changed a number of years ago when I stood in Nelson Mandela's prison cell. And uh, I had a guide and the guide walked me through the limestone quarry and then the courtyard where the ANC prisoners would um, hide his the manuscript of his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. Mm -hmm. Then I went to the prison cell and I asked the guard, I said, did you know Nelson Mandela? And he said, I, I knew Nelson Mandela. And he said, I said, you know, what do you think of him? What was he like? And he said, well, oh, that man was a humble servant. And so, you know, I've been in this field 27 years, but I, I very much... I don't think I've, I don't feel like I've achieved so much for me. It's all about service and having an impact and pursuing my craft. But yes, I come from very humble beginnings mm -hmm. um, on Instagram. I think two days ago, I actually showed a picture of my little dining room where <laughs> I had my first book. I don't know if you saw it. I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, literally there were, there were 10 boxes of my yeah. first book, which I'd self-published. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I, I would go to bookstores and I'd say, can you take this one book or five books on consignment? Which, as you know, just means they don't buy the book. Mm -hmm. They take it. And if they don't sell it, you've got to come and pick it up. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a self-published book. I published it in a 24-hour coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And I would go to Rotary Clubs and give speeches and presentations and um, something really interesting happened. I mean, you've heard that old idea, which is synchronicity is the universe's way of remaining anonymous. Mm -hmm. And uh, I happened to be in a bookstore one night. It was a rainy night. My son, Colby, we, j we just spent the weekend together. Uh, he was about four years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in a bookstore and I asked the manager, I said, can I sign the books? They had no idea who I was. And they said, okay, sure. So, uh, I took the four copies, went to the front of the store, signed the book, because someone told me that when an author signs the book, the bookstore can't return it. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I had one arm holding Colby, who was perched on the counter, and I was signing the book with my other hand. And I looked to the corner of my peripheral vision, and there was a man watching the whole scene unfold. And he looked at the book, and he said, oh... The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. That's a great title. Tell me your story. I said, I used to be a litigation lawyer, but this is my calling, and I want to get this message out to help people do amazing things with their life. And he said, my name is Ed Carson. I'm the president of HarperCollins. And uh, two weeks later, they bought the world rights to The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari for the awesome sum of $7,500. I'm not saying it's not a lot of money, but mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was, uh, that was the advance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went from there. Robin, I love this story because, you know, so often people say to me, you know, I love to be creative, right? You know, I, I love to 
you know, put beautiful things together, but I couldn't possibly go out there and talk about my work, like as if it's almost an option or as if, you know, there was some magic that other people had access to, but you're there at night in the rain with your son <laughs> speaking. At you, I think you also say in the book too, that your first live speaking event had 23 people and 21 were family members. <laughs> like there is, there is nothing, uh, there is nothing that isn't wonderful about starting small, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, but do I have to do the the basic brunt work? Do I can't I just like go straight to straight to mastery, straight to jumping to you know the 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 crowds of people who are dying to see me? And your story just really illustrates all of those steps. And you also say in the book that there was an author who you met with who discouraged you. And I mean, imagine that moment, Robin, if you just received that information, if you let it sink in. And you said, to quote your book, you said this famous author was like, look, stick to law, it's safe. It's not for everyone to be a writer. But you say someone was going to write the next bestseller. Why not me? For those of us who experienced discouragement and advice about being practical, um, could you speak to that for a moment? I would say, Susie, the world has been constructed by impractical people. <laughs> we would not have the Sistine Chapel ceiling. We would not have the Eiffel Tower. We would not have the, the great, we would not have Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. We would not have the internet. We would not have Tesla. We would not have the great inventions of the world had the woman or man listened to the critics. I, I think critics are degenerated dreamers. When they were kids, they had a sparkle in their eye. They wanted to be astronauts, poets, writers, entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And they got knocked down and they didn't get back up. Mm. So first of all, I'd say you can change the world or you can listen to your critics. You can't do both. Mm. Second thing I would say is you have got to believe in yourself when no one on the planet believes in yourself until eventually the world believes in yourself. Like every visionary was initially ridiculed before they were revered. The very nature of, a, I think, a great dream or a mighty mission or an ethical ambition is it's so bold and so disruptive that the status quo laughs at you. They laughed at the idea of the internet. They laughed at the idea of putting someone on the moon. They laughed at the idea that a human being could fly in an airplane. They laughed at the idea of the iPhone. It just goes on and on and on. Mm. And so I think the starting point is believing in your vision. I think your instinct is more powerful than your intellect. Mm. So, you know, self-trust. You have an idea. It's your idea. If your friends or boyfriend or girlfriend, husband and wife, whatever, does not get you, well, that's just their opinion. And may we not make the opinions of others more than simply the opinions of others. And then once you have the idea and you start developing the self-faith, maybe it's through prayer, journaling, meditation, visualization, reading the books of her heroes. So we understand they were laughed at. Then you've got to translate your ideation into execution. Otherwise, it amounts to delusion. Mm. So a lot of people, it's, I have an idea, but they're not willing to do the work to, bring the, uh, to make the idea real. Mm. And I think far too many good souls want the rewards of world class without doing the work that world class requires. 
<laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think in a world of like quick wins and social media, some people can accelerate quickly. And what I love about your work, Robin, is, you know, it's so much about mastery and the patience of that and the time that's required and what it demands of you as a human. And one of my favorite quotes too from you is that instinct is is wiser than intellect. And how how would you define instinct? Because sometimes I feel people go, well, maybe it's an idea, but it, you know, it doesn't seem like it's reasonable. And you know, rationally, this is what I know to be true. Uh, how would you advise someone on trusting their instinct and identifying within us, like what's real, like when it's like true, real intuition? It's a brilliant question. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I would say, you'll know when you know. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, I think this is what you're getting at, but there's the chattering voice of fear. Mm -hmm. And then there's the quieter voice of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's the more you practice and sometimes you have to stumble to discern what's the ego or what's the voice of fear and what's the voice of truth. Mm -hmm. But if you, are open and you're aware and you start paying attention and you look at when you stumble and you go, what was I listening to there? And then you look at what feels right to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of, one of the uh, chapter, one of the models in the book before, before the everyday hero manifesto, mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a book called the 5am club and there was a model in there called joy is a GPS. And I think that's a good way to trust your, your, to know your instinct. It's the people, the places, the pursuits that bring you joy. That's where your soul, your wisdom, your finest self wants you to be. There's also a chapter in the Everyday Hero Manifesto called "A Red Flag Is a Red Flag." Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is this is important in business for entrepreneurs, but it's also important in relationships. Mm -hmm. And all too often, we see a red flag, but we don't want to see it as a red flag because we want the person to be who we wish they would be, mm -hmm. rather who they're telling us they are. And I think that's instinct as well, Susie. I think we, we can, if we really trust ourselves and we're honest with ourselves versus deceiving ourselves, we see that red flag and we go, oh, that's instinct telling me this is not the right relationship or the right business deal or the right place for me to be. Mm, I love, I, you know, one thing that I especially enjoy about the Everyday Hero Manifesto with there is there are so many chapters, words of wisdom here that I haven't heard before. Often you, you know, you read books about productivity, success, mastery, and you know, when you speak about red flags, when you speak about, I mean, the threat of lifestyle complexity, when you speak about weekly sabbaticals, which you know, I want to dive in with you today, uh, it's 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 so broad and helpful. It's so it's a practical level, so useful, and an inspirational level, so useful. And I think that you combine those two so well. It's not just like go for your dreams, you know, like. And, and the rest will follow. And it's not just like, we'll take care of business in 20 minutes this and, you know, 60 minutes that. It's, is that combination really important in your life, being inspired and artistically called? And then also with the red flags, for example, I know you say trust, but verify. That's one of your pieces of advice. How do you kind of combine the two in your work, the inspirational, the inspirational and the practical? 
And just just to give credit where it's due, um, Ronald Reagan used to say, "Trust you, verify," and mm-hmm. and the, you know the, that that idea has been around for a while, um, along with uh, the Arab Arabic proverb, uh, "Pray to Allah, but tie your camel." <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, so so why why do I balance the two? Because I think I think the the I think the ideal human being, and I'm I sure I'm far from that ideal mm-hmm. human being. But I believe the ideal human being, the ideal entrepreneur, the ideal producer is part warrior and part poet. Mm -hmm. I think a great life is constructed on a foundation of part head, you know, being practical and tactical and realistic, part head and part heart. And it's just the way I try to to live my life. You know, I spent 16 months writing the Everyday Hero Manifesto. I put my heart and my soul in it. You talk about patience. I rewrote it maybe 20 or 30 times. It was just like, it was like an obsession during the pandemic working on this book. But I want it to be inspirational. We must do our best to help people get to the mountaintop. You know, uh, Napoleon said, a, a leader is a dealer in hope. If we lose our hope, we have nothing. We, we we always must protect our enthusiasm and our optimism and our and our and, and our sense of possibilities. So Inspiration is important. That's that's really. But also, if you you can be hopeful, but if you don't have a tactical strategy, if you have poor habits, if you don't know how to execute, if you don't know how to produce things, then nothing gets done. So I believe uh, Nelson Mandela said, a, "A strong head and a good heart is a formidable." combination. And another thing you said, I, I just, if I may just speak to it in the everyday hero manifesto, there are a lot of fresh ideas and it is a very disruptive book. There's so many people in the personal growth field and the leadership sphere talking about mindset is everything. And with all due respect to those pundits, I don't believe mindset is everything. I think there's mindset and this word I'm teaching called heart set. And then there's health set. And then there's soul set. Um, a lot of people are talking about hustle and grind. Personally, if you look at the science, the science suggest, confirms hustle and grind doesn't work. The most effective performers work in cycles of intense productivity, and then they pull back and they renew. So I'm just trying to give people information that, that works versus you know ideas that might not help them move the needle forward. <laughs> and speaking of habits, you also say in, uh, in the book that genius has less to do with your genetics and more to do with your habits. Could, you know, I know a lot of people go, well, you know, she's just this remarkable speaker or he's got this God-given charisma, like whatever it may be. Um, I agree with you. You know, talent that we all have in you know, varying degrees in different areas is, is quite meaningless without the right execution on our part. And could you speak to us a little bit about that, about the power of habits and how like genius or talent isn't enough? Absolutely. I would say hard work beats genius every day of the week. Mm-hmm. You look at Kobe, Kobe Bryant. There's, um, I mean, he, he is very well known for starting his training sessions at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. He, he was he was known for that. You know, one of my favorite documentaries you've probably seen it, Susie, is The Last Dance. I mean, Michael Jordan outworked everyone. Um, mm-hmm. So the the whole backstory of genius is intense. First of all, a singular focus on the skill of mastery, mm-hmm. and then secondly, 
you know, Anders Ericsson, it's been popularized by other authors, but Anders Ericsson of Florida State University was the first, was the researcher who actually came up with the 10,000 hour rule. And, and I mean, it's worth revisiting that for 10,000 hours or the equivalent of that would be 3.44 hours of practice a day for 10 years is what is required for mastery. And it's what I was suggesting before with deep respect for all of your viewers and listeners around the world. It's we want the rewards of world class, mm-hmm. but after the fifth workout, we stop mm-hmm. and, and we sell ourselves a story that you're speaking about, which is Federer and Serena and Picasso and Basquiat and Mandela and Steve Jobs and Edison. These people or Oprah Winfrey, or Madame Curie, or mm-hmm. Hedy Lamar. These people were cut from a, of a, some kind of a mystical, magical cloth of genius that I just don't have. And that just isn't true. Mm-hmm. If you look at most people, mem- let's say members of the majority, it's too easy to get caught up in trivial things. You look at most people, and I'm not judging, I'm just reporting, but they're spending the finest hours of their greatest days chasing shiny toys that at the end of the career or lifetime, I don't think will amount to very much. Mm. And so you can, so it's, it's the geniuses, they, they're focused, they train, they're masters of the polite no. They get knocked down. They don't give up their sport. They stay in their sport. They, they have mentors. They have peers in the same field. It becomes it becomes an obsession. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do want to emphasize that every single one of us has the potential to be world class at something. Mm-hmm. But if we have a story that the masters are genetically gifted. Or lucky, I hear a lot of people say, oh, she was lucky. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a story. It's a story. Like that's discounting that producers, that masters, hard work, grit, relentlessness, obsess- obsession with the skill. So mm-hmm. our story about our potential determines whether we'll live our potential. Because if we think we have a story, I can't be the best in the world at whatever it is, then we're not even going to start the first work in it. And also, Robin, one thing that you, how you balance this too, which I think is very important, is you speak often about, you know, in your peak productivity strategies. I've got it here on page 139. For those of you who have the book, you speak about rest. And this has come up a lot in my community lately because often we think that rest is something that we earn or it's something that is a reward for reaching a specific goal. But you speak specifically about the weekly sabbatical. You say during a simpler period in history, one day a week, known as a Sabbath, was reserved for a vacation of sorts from one's labor. Families united, the piles were paused, books were read, and meals were shared. The the final standard operating system of the peak productivity strategies pyramid is getting exceedingly good at taking days off. I mean... First of all, massively overlooked. People don't talk about this enough. Can you tell us about what rest looks like for you? I know at this stage, you like to take longer stretches where possible. You say, you know, a week, a month is an incredible goal. Um, Could you speak about the role of rest in your life while you balance, of course, mastery and creating and, you know, always always wanting more? Well, I would say if you want to get a lot done, if you want to get a lot done, Mm -hmm. become a professional rester. Oh, 
But could you say that again? <laughs> I said, if you want to, if you want to get a lot done, become a professional rester. There's an idea that I teach um, that has transformed the lives of my clients. I introduce it in the in the Everyday Hero Manifesto. It's called the Five Great Hours Rule. Yeah. You see, it takes a lot of people, if not most producers, eight days, ten days, to get five world class hours of work done. I'm talking about genius grade level work done. Mm-hmm. So what I've encouraged my clients to do, and I write about it in the book, is just work five hours every day, 8, 8 a.m. to 1 o'clock. But when you work, be like a be monomaniacally focused on the work. Set yourself up so there's no distractions, so there's no notifications on your phone. Understand the difference between fake work and real world work. Get lost and do beautiful work. And then after fi- after five hours of deep, monomaniacally focused, creative labor. Mm -hmm. Go for a massage, take a nap, hang out with your kids, go to an art gallery, read a book, scratch your stomach, go out and walk in nature. (laughs) So I would say, if you want to get a lot done, become a genius grade rester. I would also say, Rest is not a luxury. Rest is a necessity. And there is this mindset in society today that if you want to be a tight enough industry, if you want to be domain dominant, you need to work 24-7. Let's go to a lot of some of the great research of the Energy Project. They have found that the most productive people are much more like sprinters than marathoners. If you were to look at the some of the Olympians, their secret weapon. Work rest work their work rest ratios. Mm. So it's really important to to work really hard when you work and then rest. What does it look like for me? You know, I, I do run the five great hours rule. If I'm writing a book, I'll start at eight o'clock, and if I get four or five hours where I go into flow state. And I'm exhausted at the end of those five hours. I'm not talking only cognitively, but emotionally, physically, and spiritually. That's that's great. And then I'll take a nap. Um, I, I live the two massage protocol that I talk about in the Everyday Hero Manifesto. Uh, Fridays are generally what I call device-free days. So from the first thing I do when I wake up at 5 a.m. on Friday, the, the, the device is off. And Elle and I will go for a lunch at our favorite restaurant on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Friday mornings, I might sit in the sun and read or write in my journal. And I just, I won't have my devices around me. So that would be an example of a weekly sabbatical. Past mm-hmm. 15 years, I've taken from the last week of June until the last week of August. I've blocked it out every January. Mm-hmm. And I will I will travel. And, you know, Haruki Murakami, the great Japanese novelist, said, when I'm not working, uh, when I'm not writing my novel, I'm actually writing my novel, because during that fallow season, the ideas incubate. And a great farmer understands that to have a great harvest, you've got to have have a great fallow season. Mm -hmm. And so I take two months off in the summer to go to art galleries, to travel, to talk to people. And, And then I come back strong, because the key to legendary... Mm-hmm. is longevity. Mm-hmm. And so you want to be one of those people who do not lose their spark and their game and their 
hunger to to optimize their craft after a couple of years because you burn out. You want to be like Def Leppard, like you two, like the <laughs> Stones, like Jay-Z, like, you know, not not only a two year, two years at world class, you want to create an entire career at world class, which is really very rare. Mm. And speaking of social media and your device free Fridays, I think that you know, people have this idea that, you know, I could go one day a week without a device or, you know, that's available to me, but yet it, it rarely happens. And I also discovered that the average American spends two hours and 40 minutes a day on social media, on social apps. And we haven't got time to learn other languages, right? We haven't got time to create or to write a book, right? Or to work on our speech, whatever it may be. Um, what's your relationship outside of those Fridays? Because I'm sure people are curious. What's your relationship with like on social media? Because you have a great active page. Like I love watching your stories. There's actually one I want to speak to you about today about happiness. Um, but how, how do you manage it? every other day right like generally speaking well i'm just very aware when i pick up my phone mm. and i have those timers you know that you can set it for let's say it's instagram you, you set it for 30 minutes a day and i use i'm just very strategic and very deliberate and very willful in my use of social media i mm. i think it's i think social media and technology is an incredible servant mm -hmm. and it's a it's a horrific master mm -hmm. but i think we live in the greatest i know there's wars and i know there's plagues and i know there's social divisiveness and there's a lot of problems in the world mm -hmm. but also susie you can change the world with a phone you can start a, a block, look at you what what, you, what you've done using technology yeah. you can be 17 years old and, and and get a little mobile device start a channel where you not only make your fortune, you serve the world and distribute beautiful content that helps people. So I think we live in a in a in a really wonderful time in many ways, and that often gets looked. My relationship with technology is: I think I'm a I am a an introvert at heart, and I really like my quietude, and I really like nature, and I really, you know, I'm old school in many ways. Like I love. I love books, you know, I mean, around me are real, like the tactical books. So I don't really have much of a problem with it, but we all know about the addictions of it. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned some, some, some research. I was reading the financial times yesterday mm -hmm. and they were talking about people's relationships with technology. And there was a, these researchers tried to do an experiment where they wanted to look at you know, what happened to people if they actually turned off all their notifications over an extended period of time? And I'm not kidding you. They had to cancel the experiment <laughs> because they couldn't, they couldn't get any people who would accept turning off their phones for more than a few, a few hours. Wow. So, I mean, to be very tactical on your device free Fridays, you can take your phone, put it in a little bag or put it in the trunk of your car or put it in your refrigerator i don't know but put, put it in some place or maybe like a little bag where you have a label on it which is do not touch this at the price of your own good health because i think if you look at geniuses they all had one thing in common they spent a lot of time alone without distraction mm -hmm. and so if you want to be super productive it's important to get lost I'm reading this great book the splendid and the vile by winston Ch about winston churchill mm -hmm. he, he would get lost at checkers 
you know, the great, the great artists, they all had their retreats. Basquiat had his work studios. So we must find our places where we get lost from the world. I mean, I think it's important to spend a lot of time in the wilderness if you want to be really good in the world. Mm, I remember from the 5am club, Robin, one of my favorite sentences from it was tranquility is the new luxury of our society. Because I mean, that there isn't really a moment. Well, and it's easy to have that kind of passive language. I just get sucked in. I don't have a, you know, but really we are, like you said, you know, it's a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And sometimes I think we forget, like we just forget. We think that we think it's required. We don't want to miss an opportunity. We don't want to miss something that could be, you know, I, I always like to joke with my people. If the queen calls, you'll know, like if the queen's inviting you to tea, you'll know <laughs> something so urgent and big won't happen. And you, if you take a day off, it'll be okay. But it's interesting how, how also too, Robin, I'm sure sometimes just, you know, being who you are in the world, someone who focuses, takes breaks, um, it, it's just, it's not the most common thing. So it's also an act of bravery to do this. Like it's almost like an act of courage standing out, being almost considered rebellious to take a, take a long break, maybe privately retreat for a while. Is that something that you still encounter when people, when you meet new people, like, oh, you spend so much time alone. Oh, you're hmm, so interesting. We work all the time. There's there's a, a line in the Everyday Hero Manifesto, and it's that have the results 90, to have the results only 5% of the population has, we must be willing to do what 95% of the population is unwilling to do. And I'm not judging. I'm just reporting. But if you want to be really productive, and this is not only about productivity, but if you want to be uber productive and then have the psychic joy and the satisfaction of pursuing a craft and knowing that your, your labor serves the world, and if you want to have more free time to do the things that fill you with joy, mm-hmm. then I think you have to be unorthodox. Mm-hmm. Because I think it is a reality most people are... They have their notifications on. Mm. They're very consumed with social media. Too many good people are masters of entertainment Mm -hmm. versus good students of education. Mm -hmm. Too many good people are busy being busy, going through the paces, and they've lost the sparkle in their eye. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you look at how a lot of people behave, and you do the opposite, mm-hmm. I think you're going to get great results. That does require bravery. It does require you to be comfortable in your own skin. It does you. It does you require you to be okay with being called strange, weird, and eccentric. <laughs> but you know what? The world has been built by strange, weird, and eccentric women and men. Speaking of... Um speaking of what it takes to stand out and and and, and live true to yourself one of my favorite chapters in the book is uh, the 40 by 40 so it's page 145 146 i love this i love lists like these robin it's called 40 things i'd wish i'd known at 40 i'd like to share with you a couple of my favorites and to have you expand on them if that's okay <laughs> Of course. Um, okay. The way people make you feel when you interact with them tells you everything you need to know about them. Mm. 
I, I don't I don't know how much more I could add to that. I think the I think we've all met people who make us feel small. Mm-hmm. And of course, someone could say, well, that's your stuff. You've got to make yourself feel bigger inside. And there's truth to that. And yet we're humans. Mm-hmm. And the human condition is a flawed condition. Mm-hmm. And I've encountered people, sometimes they've been my heroes. Mm-hmm. And they've made me, they haven't made me feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. Because you want to be like Nelson Mandela who left every person he met bigger than he found them. And I've been blessed to have met people like that. They were just so secure in their own skin, such teachers of wisdom, bravery, and love Mm -hmm. that they shone a light on everyone else around them. And there's not so many people like that in the world anymore, but I think we should pay attention to that. Look, the people who make us feel bigger, Mm-hmm. And then the people who make us feel smaller. And I think if you want to change your life, you basically pull out your journal and you do a list of the energy vampires. And the and then you do a list of the, let's call them the joy inflators, the people who make us feel good. And you strip out, out of your life the energy vampires and you refill your life with the joy inflators. Watch what happens to your Positivity, creativity, productivity, prosperity, <laughs> sense of humanity. Oh my gosh, I agree, Robin. We recently had um, Laurie Gottlieb, the therapist, on the podcast, and she said, before I want to diagnose someone as depressed, I make sure they're not surrounded by assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And I love the story that you share in the book too. Um, it was an athlete who was at the airport. It was a rush and someone wanted to stop and take a picture. And he did. And you asked him, he said, you were so gracious and stopped for that family. And he said, you know, it takes so little to make people happy. And I would also like to say, Robin, that when we were together in New York, having a lovely walk, there was a waiter who we came across in the street who served you the night before at dinner and you stopped him and asked him something about his personal life because I think he was doing something that evening. And I was like, wow, Robin really like, oh, I mean, not that there's anything to prove, but I was like, just the real deal right here, checking in with a guy who was just also so happy to give you an update. I'm not sure if you even remember that. You probably don't. But kindness. I think I think it comes down to we're all brothers and sisters on a very small planet in a galaxy with trillions of other galaxies. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the part I want to I want to give credit to the person you mentioned. His name is Pau Gasol, and mm-hmm. and he was the uh, former center of the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm-hmm. And he had attended um, one of my weekend events, and I was taking him to his gate at the airport. Mm-hmm. And I just watched this man in action and he stopped for everyone. Mm-hmm. And he did say that to me. He said, it takes so little to make someone happy. Also rem- reminds me of some another experience I had that I wrote about in the Everyday Hero Manifesto. I was in the Dubai airport. Mm-hmm. I got into the elevator mm-hmm. and there was this gentleman who had a baseball hat. And if you're a motocrosser, you know, Fox <laughs> motocross. And I used to race motocross when I was younger. And, uh, I, I I wanted to say great hat, but mm-hmm. how how much do we miss in life because of our fear of rejection? Mm. It's inc- just think about that. How much do we miss like connections and opportunities and friendships and 
you know, love stories and Mm -hmm. businesses because we're afraid of a no. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I got it right in that moment. And I said to him, I go, you've got a great hat. I love it. And without thinking, Susie, he took the hat off and gave it to me. And I show the picture in the Mm -hmm. book, but like without even thinking, he gave it to me. So I'm not trying to say that I'm anyone special, but I was in Cairo three weeks ago. I went in the men's room in the domestic, excuse me, the international men's room terminal. And there was um, um, uh, uh, a restroom attendant. And he looked at my K-Way jacket. It was one of those little K-Way jackets, you know, the windbreakers. And he goes, cool. And without thinking, I gave it to him. Because that man in Dubai taught me a really good lesson. So I think, you know, so little is required to make people happy. It's, I think it's a good way to go through life. And I love to what your dad, I know that your father was or is this huge mentor for you, such a, such a guide. And I love what you shared that he put in a letter for you. I can read it or would you like to share, share it? Um, I think you better, you better read it. I don't <laughs> remember off the top of my head. It's about, you know, understanding what, Kind of, you know, pertaining to this conversation that when you're born, right, everyone around you is rejoicing and you're crying and you want to live your life in such a way that when you die, uh, you're rejoicing and everyone around you is crying. I mean, oh. (laughs) Yeah, he said, he said, Robin, when you were born, you, Robin, when you were born, you cried while the world rejoiced. Mm -hmm. He said, son, live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries while you rejoice. And my dad turned 85 uh, uh, a week and a half ago. And, and, you know, I learned so much about my dad. He was a family doctor for um, like 45 years. And I said, why did you keep practicing so long? And he said, because my patients needed me. So, I mean, one thing I really believe in is good mentors. And I think, um, these people we've been talking about, they, they really can influence and remind us about what's most important in life. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're right about that point from that chapter. It's like, trust how people make you feel. Yes. And the perspective too of your life. I mean, we. I always like to think, you know, when I'm 90, when I look back, I want to think, oh gosh, I just, I gave everything. I was generous. I made the, made, speaking of, you know, the Let It Be Easy podcast, maybe I brought some ease some people maybe that was available and i think that the perspective too in the everyday hero manifesto is what we're getting it, it's like you know we live we, we're present now we do what we can now but also you know the end will come <laughs> inevitably and so how will we have lived like how will we have lived and going back to this list that i love oh here's another one that i like the activities and places that fill you with joy are the activities and places where your wisdom wishes you to be I, again, that's. I believe we have a, a lower self, call it our reptilian self, our yes. animalistic self, yeah. right? Fight, fl- fight, flight, freeze response, mm-hmm. amygdala, limbic hijack, mm-hmm. co- the fear hormone, cortisol. We could get in all that neuroscience, neurobiology, mm-hmm. but we also have a higher self, and mm-hmm. it's it's easy in this complicated, volatile busy world to get disconnected with who we truly are mm-hmm. but that is who we truly are mm-hmm. you know i believe we are born we are born into magic we get resigned into frustration mm-hmm. and we we're born into 
possibility. And then we experience micro and macro trauma, which if, we're, if we don't know how to heal it and work through it, it causes us to contract. Then we're 25, 35, 85, and we're in a shell and we're disconnected to our love, our genius, our creativity, our productivity, our humanity. Mm. And so when we connect with that higher part of us through solitude, prayer, meditation, working with a spiritual counselor, massage, sweat lodges, Reiki, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these different modalities. Mm-hmm. We rebuild the relationship with our finest self. And once we rebuild that relationship with our best selves, well, then our relationship with our loved ones, our friends, money, our community, productivity, creativity, and society (laughs) represents that fundamental relationship. Mm. So I think when we go to, like for me, we talked about it off air, but when I land at Fiumicino, in Italy, in Rome, Mm -hmm. and I walk off the plane, I go, I think it's like a past life connection or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, and forgive me if people don't believe in that, that's fine. But I, I, I personally, I think, I think it's probably true. Mm-hmm. We but, actually just had a past. Uh, we just had uh, Oprah's past life reader on the podcast too, saying there is connections when you feel deeply connected with a country, and often the opposite too. If you feel a real repulsion against a certain place, it's because there's a past life connection. Yeah, and there's a great book you've probably read. It's called Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukav. Oh yes, 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 yes. Love. And and one of the things I learned from that book was he he said, you know. It, let's say you have a facility and a love of piano. Well, maybe you were a maestro or virtuoso yes. in a previous life. But if, if people don't believe it, I don't want them to, to shut down because they don't because there's an idea yeah. that causes them to dismiss everything else I've been saying. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll simply say, trust your gut. There's lots of good science on the gut, the instinct, the third brain, right? Mm-hmm. Science confirms we have the cognitive brain, we have a brain in the heart, we have a brain in the gut, that's instinct. Mm -hmm. And so there are places you go to where you just feel alive, trust that. That's where your wisdom wants you to be. Mm -hmm. There are people that we meet, the first time we meet them, could be in love, it could be as friendship. We just go, I don't know what it is, but I just feel I've known you my whole life. Mm -hmm. Trust that. Mm -hmm. And then there are pursuits. When we do them, time just passes. We we enter flow state. Trust that. Mm. I mean, if you, imagine if we fill our lives mm. with the people, places, and pursuits that light us up, and we yeah. and we do the corresponding exercise, we remove from our life the people, places, and pursuits that destroy our joy. That idea right there, if Mm -hmm. any one of your listeners were to do it with excellence, rigor, and follow through is completely life-changing. Yes. And, you know, part of, I mean, I I learned uh, not long ago that the word passion, the origin of the word passion means to suffer. And this is also part of the conversation, right? Like, what is it that you're willing to suffer for? Like, if you want to create something great, it won't just be, you know, up, 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 you know, up and to the right, expansion, ease all the way. That's certainly 
no path is like that, which is also why I love to, you know, read different stories, different autobiographies. But one other thing you say in this list is when you feel most alone, which can happen sometimes, I think when you're really pursuing your path and other people don't understand you, you say that when you feel most alone, your higher power is closest to you. Is that how you felt in different cycles of your life? Absolutely. During my seasons of greatest suffering and during my long walks in the valley of darkness, mm-hmm. when I experienced great difficulty in my life, mm-hmm. that's when, first of all, that's when, that's what cracks the ego. Rumi said it beautifully, Susie. He said, keep breaking your heart over and over and over and over and over again until it opens. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the times that have broken my heart have been the times that have opened my heart. And it's during my seasons to, to borrow a phrase of Khalil Gibran, the great Lebanese poet in my, in my seasons of sorrow is when I connected to, to, to my finest self. Mm. And then you get your, your days in the sunshine and you get to bring all of the gifts you've learned about who you truly are into the seasons of sunshine. And that's why a lot of the, I mean, there are a few chapters in the Everyday Hero Manifesto that speak to the incredible value of hardship. The ego in our society says, don't suffer, don't suffer for your craft, don't suffer heartbreak, rush into the next activity. What I would suggest is when you're in one of those seasons of pain, mm. I know this is I know this is counterintuitive, but stay in it. Mm. Let the pain be your purification. Mm. We cannot experience a resurrection without a crucifixion. The old part of us must die for the better part of us to be born. And what I found is when the old part of me died, maybe whatever, through a painful time. What I learned and who I became and what I purified found its way into my next book. Mm. My writing evolved. My relationships evolved. My connection with strangers evolved. So I believe we must use suffering and actually exploit the suffering to burn off the fear, the ego, the shame, the disappointment, the sadness. Let the current pain touch the old pain so you process through it and release it and become reborn anew. And people say, well, what about productivity? You know, I'm an entrepreneur. What could be more valuable to your prosperity, impact, performance, productivity than letting go of the baggage that was keeping you small? Mm. You say too. In the book, that a difficult day for the ego is a splendid day for the soul. And I think that we don't want to face that, right? We're like, this is this has to be over. How do I fix it? Like, who can help? Uh, what can I drink? What can I eat? Like, what, where's my phone? Like, I need to like <laughs> go a million miles an hour. But like you said, the gift, I mean, we don't see it in the moment though, right? Like the gift, you know, it, it, like you said, it evolves, you become a better writer, you use the pain creatively. Um, but mm-hmm. when we're in it, because, you know, it has been a difficult couple of years for everybody. And I think that for anyone who's feeling like, you know, I'm having a difficult day or I'm having a difficult season, 
is there anything that you tell yourself while you're in it? I know you say like exploit it, stay in it. Um, is there anything, to, do you also remind yourself that it's temporary or is there a practice that you have during, like during more challenging exp- you know, experiences in your life? Well, there's, there's a very old idea, which is rough seas make great sailors. Mm-hmm. So pretend we're sailors. Well, the first storm we, we freak out, mm-hmm. but the 1000th storm or the 50th storm, mm-hmm. we know we can get through the storm. Mm-hmm. We know how to handle that wave. Mm-hmm. We know how to run our navigation systems. We dis- develop an ease, mm-hmm. a facility a fluency, and eventually a mastery with dealing with difficult. Mm-hmm. So the key is to begin. <laughs> well, we, we don't have to begin. We all have bad days. Mm-hmm. But the key is to start the process of how can I learn from this bad day? What are the tools that will help me navigate this bad day? We can get into them. You know, mm-hmm. For me, if I'm having a bad day, prayer is incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, if i'm having a bad day a nap never hurts Mm, agree Mm -hmm. if i'm having a bad day a walk in nature for one hour Mm. incredible if i'm having a bad day talking to my partner about it to get it out of my system amazing if i'm having a bad day i'll get on an elliptical machine and sweat it out Mm. so now the question what happens if you're having a bad year What happens if you're having a bad decade? Well, you use these tools, but it starts with the awareness that a difficult time has great gifts in it. I mean, I I, I talked about in in the book, I I was once on a flight to Paris and I was sitting next to an artist and he said, I pick relationships that um, break my heart. And I said, why do you do that? And he said, oh, because, you know, in the heartbreak, I do my best work. So. If you look at the greatest human beings who have graced the planet, they have suffered the most. Mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks, mm-hmm. Mother Teresa, MLK. Mm-hmm. These people, these people suffered. We have a bad. I'm not minimizing it, but mm-hmm. we have a bad day that they spend 27 years in confinement, and yet every single picture you see of Nelson Mandela after he was released from prison, he's smiling. Mm. Robin, I could keep you forever. Like <laughs> I've got to look at the time because I mean, we, I feel like I mean, I hope you'll come back on the podcast. Truly, be a pleasure. <laughs> there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I love to end uh, the Let It Be Easy podcast with a rapid fire round of quick, a few quick questions. If you're up for sure. it, absolutely wonderful. And um, before we do that, where is the best place for people to find you, connect with you, follow you? Sure. Uh, the Everyday Hero Manifesto is available on Amazon. People are yes. loving the audiobook, so that's yes. audible. Mm-hmm. Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, they can follow me on uh, Instagram. Mm-hmm. And if they want to get regular videos and mentoring and great value, they can su- sign up for my email list at uh, Robin Sharma, R-O-B-I-N-S-H-A-R-M-A dot com. And um, we put out a lot of really great videos and teaching programs that speak to all of the ideas that we've covered uh, in this amazing conversation we've had. I've really enjoyed it. Oh my gosh, me too. And also for everyone, like this book, it's, <laughs> I feel like it should be $5,000. 
<laughs> like the, what you share so many, like I said, so many practical pieces of information, actionable steps that we can take incredibly inspirational stories from your life, from other people's lives. You also share your favorite movies, documentaries, books. I mean, everything's curated here for us. So thank you, Robin, for this marvelous creation. Can't wait for the next one. I hope that's on the books. Um, but okay, we'll kick off our final round now. <gasps> okay. What would your very last meal be? Oh, I've had that conversation with people. There's actually a book about like last meals of famous chefs. Uh-huh. I would say, I would say it would be um, uh, a splendid piece of mozzarella di bufala, buffalo mozzarella, mm. you know, fresh, fresh from the farm to start off with, with some olive oil over it. And then a, a plate of a good pasta, fresh pasta, simple Pomodoro sauce. And I'd finish it with uh, maybe you know, uh, some nice fruit with some nice uh, cream or gelato. Mm, I love how you know. <laughs> it's not like, a, ooh, let me think. Uh, a place in the world you still really want to visit? Tokyo. Mm, oh, interesting. Tokyo, beautiful place. Um, when people think of you, how do you want them to feel? Uh, that he's a humble servant, that he's honest, and that he really cares about how would someone who knew you well as a kid describe you back then? Uh, I think uh, full of full of energy, uh, very talkative, and um, maybe a little quirky. Mm. Oh, speaking of quirks, what is a quirk that you have now as an adult that only those closest to you would know about? I fast a lot. Mm. Like I really, I really love fasting and there's great science about it. I don't know if you know this, but fasting releases brain derived neurotrophic factor, key to longevity, caloric restriction, a lot of research coming out about it. Just amazing. But I mean, people close to me, just, they say, wow, you really fast a lot. Fascinating. Saves on the grocery bill too. (laughs) Hidden benefit. Um, An item in your home you can't live without. My books. Mm. Okay, finish this sentence. Success is service. And then finally, on the Let It Be Easy podcast, what's one thing you do consistently that allows your life to be easier? I do. I I I, have, I am a card carrying member of the Five AM Club. <laughs> Robin Sharma, thank you so much. Until next time, <laughs> bye bye for now. <sighs> Thanks so much. If you like this episode, you'll love my free workshop called Become Your Own Life Coach. Head on over to becomeyourownlifecoach.com now, and I'll teach you how to coach yourself through any of life's problems. I'll see you there.